Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. Now we're coming to the last section of Daniel 11, beginning at verse 36 to 45. Very difficult to figure out what's going on here. The king will do as he pleases, exalting himself and claiming to be greater than even God, even blaspheming the God of gods. He will succeed, but only until the time of wrath is completed. For what has been determined will surely take place. He will have no regard for the gods of his ancestors ancestors, or for the god loved by women or for any other god, for he will boast that he is greater than them all. Instead of these, he will worship the god of fortresses, a god his ancestors never knew, and lavish on him gold, silver, precious stones, and expensive gifts. Claiming this foreign god's help, he will attack the strongest fortresses. He will honor those who submit to him, appointing them to positions of authority and dividing the land among them as their reward. Then at the time of the end, the king of the south will attack the king of the north. The king of the north will storm out with chariots, charioteers, and a vast navy. He will invade various lands and sweep through them like a flood. He will enter the glorious land of Israel, and many nations will fall. But Moab, Edom, and the best part of Ammon will escape. He will conquer many countries, and even Egypt will not escape. He will gain control over the gold, the silver, and treasures of Egypt, and the Libyans and Ethiopians will be his servants. But then news from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in great anger to destroy and obliterate many. He will stop between the glorious holy mountain and the sea, and will pitch his royal tents, but while he is there, his time will suddenly run out, and no one will help him. This last section is the most controversial of Daniel chapter 11. Both conservative scholars and critical scholars of the Bible, those that take a more liberal view of Scripture, they all believe that verses 21 to 35 referred to who we talked about last week, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, the great persecutor of the Jews in the second century B.C. And we went through that. They all believe that about those verses. But verse 36 to the end, they don't all agree. There's different ideas about this. Let me tell you what the problems are. 
In verses 36 to 39, it seems like the story of Antiochus Epiphanes ended in verse 35. Sort of wrapped it up with what he did to the Jewish people. But verse 36 seems to circle around and come back to him and talk about especially his view of himself with respect to gods or God, the God of Israel. It just seems to be out of place. It doesn't seem to go with the previous section that came off as complete. But add to that that it's hard, it's difficult to harmonize some of the things that we just read in those verses with the life of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, in the section last week that we considered, We could follow it through history. I tried to bring it out. How Daniel is given this report of historical events. And it's quite clear to the historians how this all was fulfilled later. Daniel's writing in the 6th century. These are events in the 2nd century, several hundred years away. And yet there's an accuracy there. There's an order that's very complete, and it's it's marvelous, verses 21 to 35, about that individual ruler. But these verses in 36 to 39, it's kind of difficult to match them up with him. His claim to deity is just the only thing he did is he put on a coin with his image In addition to epiphanies, he put theos on it. God manifested. This is Antiochus Epiphanes IV. So he did claim deity, but that was not unusual. Many of them did. But other than that, it's difficult to work these verses into the history of Antiochus IV. So that's a problem. Verses 36 to 39. Then in 40 through 45, it just clearly, there's no sequence of events in history that matches what is in those verses. So especially verses 40 to 45. So what do you do with this? These are some of the solutions. There are those who believe that the narrative in verses 36 to 45 is actually continuing the narrative of Antiochus IV. But they see it as sort of imaginary prophecy. It's like visualizing his eventual defeat. That it's not relating specific details in history that find a fulfillment in history because they recognize you can't match these things up to anything in history. So it's, it's kind of an imaginary scenario of Antiochus's defeat and coming to an end. That's how it's viewed by some, verses 36 to 45. You know, I I recognize this is more of a Sunday school lesson I'm giving you this morning. 
So bear with me, try to think with me through these things. When we come to the 12th chapter, God willing, when we come back from North Carolina, it's going to take a different turn. Chapter 12 is wonderful in Daniel. But this is, this is a tough section here. So let's, let's, let's wrestle with the scriptures together. Let's try to understand this. There are those who believe that this section, 36 to 45, is actually referring to a different historical figure in history. That the, that the angel is giving Daniel prophecy of somebody else beyond Antiochus IV. And these are the suggestions. The general Roman general Pompey, the Roman general Titus, Herod the Great, even Constantine of the 4th century, the Emperor Constantine. So there's those that try to match it with one of these individuals. But there's a possible third solution. And this is the one I lean toward. I'm not going to preach it to you dogmatically that this is how you have to view this. But I'm going to look at the text from this angle. This is the one that, to me, makes more sense. How many of you heard of Jerome, St. Jerome? He was the translator of the Bible into Latin in the 5th century the Latin Vulgate. He was a priest. Jerome was the first in church history to suggest that this section that we're looking at this morning is referring to an Antichrist figure. Somebody off in the distant future, not in the 2nd century B.C., so it's interesting that even back then, that long ago, somebody saw it a little differently. One of the commentaries that I've used on the book of Daniel has been Tremper Longman III's work on Daniel. He's one of the translators, by the way, of the NLT that we just read. He's a new Old Testament scholar at Westmont. And Tremper Longman says this about this section. He says, We see references to Antiochus Epiphanes. So he acknowledges that this is kind of in the language of Antiochus Epiphanes. The king of the north and the king of the south and so on. This is kind of, it follows what we just read uh, last week. So it's following, there's a pattern here. It sounds like we're talking about the same person. And Tripper Longman is, is referencing that. He's saying this is the, this, that we see references to Antiochus, but he says he's taking on a larger-than-life characteristics, which we, living in the light of the New Testament, might describe as anticipatory of a figure called the Antichrist. So Longman, he has a, a long discussion in his commentary in preparation for 
his exposition of this section. And I kind of gave you a reader's digest of that by explaining what the problems are and the different views that try to solve this. Again, the problem not being able to line up what is described here with events in the life of Antiochus. They don't fit. They're not events that are recorded in history. So in other words, this is indicating this is something that is in the far future that is being talked about here beyond the second century BC. So this is called, uh, the view would be, I believe in an eschatological, if you want a 50 cent word, I, I have an eschatological view of the fulfillment of Daniel 36 through 45. Eschatological meaning the idea that it's still way off in the future. It hasn't been fulfilled yet. It's a future event that's being looked at. Now let me give you some very good reasons why this seems to be the case here. First of all, there's a principle concerning the interpretation of Bible prophecy that's very well known. It's called telescoping. Bible prophecy often telescopes events. When I was in college, it was described a little differently. But I like this new term that they use, a telescoping events. And what, that, what they mean by that is, as the Bible is looking off into the future with a telescope, looking at events, it's, it's pulling in things from the future, and it makes it look like it's the thing in the distant future is actually right behind something not so far away in the future. It pulls them together. So it's hard to distinguish between what, a, what might be a near prophecy from one that's more distant. For example, here's another way to look at it. If you're looking off into the distance and you see some mountain peaks, you see a range of mountains in front of you, and you see one peak and then another peak behind it, and as you're looking at it, it looks like the second peak is right behind the first one that they're on top of each other. Yet, if you were to drive up there and look at the mountain peaks sideways, you see that there's a valley between them, quite a distance. And this is what Bible prophecy sometimes does. It pulls in a more distant fulfillment to something more near. And we have a hard time distinguishing between them. A beautiful example is the Olivet Discourse of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 24, where you have a description of the destruction of Jerusalem that goes right into the second coming of Jesus. They seem to be on top of each other, the way he describes it. Like with the, with the destruction of Jerusalem, he was going to come back and that was going to be the end of the world. But now we know there's a big gap between 70 A.D. 
And when the sign of the Son of Man appears in heaven and the lights go out in the universe and then he appears in all his glory and all the holy angels with him. That has not occurred yet. But as he's teaching it, these events are telescoped together. So that could be very well what is going on here in this section. That Antiochus Epiphanes... The fourth, and this may be the reason why there's so much space in Daniel's prophecy given to him, because he's some sort of a type or a figure of an antichrist in the future. Well, that's it. That's an important. Now, coming to the text itself, here's a couple of clues for us. Notice how verse 40 begins. Then at the time of the end. Huh. What end is he talking about there? Is he talking about the end of the reign of Antiochus? Or is he talking about the end of the age? In other words, is this now looking way further down through history to the real end of all things, the end of time, the end of history, the end of the world. And you know, the New Testament has a lot to say about that in the writings of Paul. So that, that, that's interesting that verse 40 begins like that. But this to me is the clincher. When we get into chapter 12, remember there were no chapter divisions originally when the book was written. Chapter 12 begins with the tribulation, the great tribulation, the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal state. Right off in the first three verses, Daniel chapter 12. Now, I, want to, I don't want to give away too much because this is material for my sermon when I come to chapter 12, but just to introduce it, that that is the context of right there, the end. So we got these clues around this passage indicating that we may be dealing with something that goes beyond Antiochus of the second century. But now let's look at just a couple of the parallels in what we read that sounds very much like the New Testament to me. Look at verse 36 and 37. The king will do as he pleases. Now, exalting himself and claiming to be greater than every god, even blaspheming the god of gods... He will succeed, but only until the time of the wrath is completed. Notice that, the time of wrath. That's what the period of the tribulation is called. It's called the time when God is pouring out his wrath on the earth. Revelation 16 and verse 1. But he is blaspheming God. He's claiming to be greater than any God. He'll have no respect for the God of his ancestors, and so on. 
he will boast that he's greater than them all. Remember what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 about the son of perdition. This is a clear reference to the Antichrist. Paul doesn't call him the Antichrist, but he calls him the son of perdition, who gets his power and authority from Satan himself. And he's going to be able to do miracles that's going to deceive multitudes. Paul calls them lying wonders. Not that they're fake. They're not fake miracles, but they're miracles intended to deceive. That's how Paul puts it. And because people did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved, they're going to believe his lies and deception. But Paul says of the son of perdition this, that he will oppose and exalt himself against every god proclaiming himself to be god 2 Thessalonians 2:4 so this is this is a characteristic of the antichrist he's going to claim to be deity and he's going to have people that embrace it revelation 13 which i also which i believe also is referring to the antichrist it's the beast out of the sea i don't believe it's a religious system that's being described there i believe it's a, a person because he recovers from a deadly wound and he's correlated with the emperors of rome no doubt as they were types of him but of the beast that comes out of the sea it says in verses 5 and 6 that the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words against God. So it's, it's, here you've got parallel statements from the New Testament that correlates with what is said here about this, this king. So that's, to me, these are just, if I take this view that it's eschatological, and as Tremper Longman says, in light of the New Testament, this seems to be anticipatory of the Antichrist figure. Now there's one other interesting detail here I want to draw your attention to. In verse 37... He will have no respect for the gods of his ancestors. Now, the word in Hebrew for gods is the plural form of Elohim. It's the word used in Genesis 1 for the creator. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. A plural noun with a singular verb. It's interesting. And Hebrew scholars explain that as being a plural of majesty, that that's why the plural is used of the true God. Also could be indicative of his being more than one person, that he's three persons. But whatever. He will have no respect for the Elohim of his ancestors. That could be translated, he will have no respect for God, big G, of his ancestors. In other words, this possibly could be an indication, if we're talking about the Antichrist, that he comes, that he's a Jew. 
I mean, this, is, this has been a possibility that Bible scholars have brought out. It is interesting that when Jacob looked at all of his sons in Genesis 49, and he says something about each of them that, that correlates to their character and also to what they would become later in history, the people from that tribe. He says of the tribe of Dan, Dan shall be a serpent in the way that bites the horse's heels so his rider falls backwards. I want you to hear what Calvin said about this comment about Dan. This is Calvin. Jacob compares this people, that is, the tribe of Dan, to serpents who rise out of their lurking places by stealth against the unweary whom they wish to injure. He will fight by cunning and will make use of snares. Doesn't sound like a very nice person. Dan. Or the people that come from Dan. Now add to this, in Revelation 7, when it you have the 12,000 from every tribe listed. 144,000 Jews that are sealed. They're all there but the tribe of Dan. It's interesting. Some have put all of that together to say... It's very possible that this future figure called in the Bible the Antichrist, which means two things, actually. Anti means two things. He is against Christ, and he is in the place of Christ. The Greek word, anti, is one of the words used in the New Testament to describe the death of Jesus, that he died in the place of sinners uses anti and huper to describe his substitution. So antichrist could mean he's in the place of Christ because Jesus warned there are going to be many false Christs who come, but he says, do not believe it, the end is not yet. Who did he say that to? He said it to Jewish people. He was warning his own people, beware of those that claim to be me. Well, especially possibly a Jewish person among them who would claim to be the Christ. You couldn't very well proclaim yourself to be the Messiah unless you were Jewish. Now, Jesus calls them false Christs, false messiahs. It's interesting, Jesus said to the, the leadership in John chapter 5, he says, I have come in my Father's name and you will not receive me. This is John 5.43. I've come in my Father's name, and you have rejected me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Is that a forecasting of the Jewish people embracing a false Messiah in the future? The Antichrist, when he says that. I'm I'm just throwing some things out for you to think about. These are things to grapple with in our understanding of the Word of God. 
Well, what, what about verses 40 to 45? What is being described there? This comes out of John Golding Jay's commentary that's in the Word Biblical Commentary on Daniel. And I'm summarizing here what he says about 40 to 45. He says that the future in these verses is, is predicted under an imaginary historical account of Antiochus. He says it's an imaginary, so it's kind of similar to what I was saying before, that some have interpreted these verses along that line, that it's an imaginary account because it can't be correlated with actual events, and that these predictions are based on the pattern of earlier events from the life of Antiochus, but his deeds are reaching way beyond anything that we've already read in those previous verses. So what appears to be in 40 to 45 is a description of a war, a battle. And the king of the north, which was Antiochus Epiphanes, he was the Syrian ruler of the Seleucid kingdom, that he comes away and he triumphs. He's victorious. In verses, that, that's 40 through 43. He's victorious over his enemies. Now, here, here's another, an odd thing I want to throw in here to make you think that this, this is really talking about something beyond events in history. Those nations that are mentioned here, the nations that fall, Moab, Edom, and Ammon, they were long gone in the second century. They did not exist anymore. So they cannot, you cannot apply this to events in the life of Antiochus Epiphanes. But yet, these, are the na- these were nations that were clearly enemies of Israel. So his triumph is described in those verses, 40 to 43. And then it seems to come to a head and a final showdown of some kind is seemingly described here that ends in his downfall. Now, this is what Golding J says. He says that this battle that is described here takes place at the center of the world, at the place where the scriptures had therefore long expected the final conflict. So, a great battle that culminates in the land of Israel. Notice, he will stop between the glorious holy mountain and the sea. Or, actually, it's more, he will stop, uh, he's going to set up his tents, his palatial tents, between the seas, plural, 
and the glorious holy mountain. The seas could be the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea, and in between is Jerusalem and the glorious holy mountain of Zion. So things are coming to a head in the land of Israel involving some sort of climatic battle or showdown. And that's the end of this person. By this time, it will suddenly, his time will suddenly run out and there'll be no one to help him. So that's the end of this Antichrist figure, if, it's, if this is who it's talking about. Okay, this is a possible understanding of Daniel 36 to 45. I've never grappled with it before. It's a, it's a interesting passage, but food for thought. So take it for what it's worth, and maybe there's something there. But let me wrap up with a couple of thoughts here. So we've been through 11 chapters of Daniel. A great chapter is ahead in chapter 12. But what have we learned in many of those chapters, it, it, we keep coming back to the fact that what is being taught over and over again in many of those chapters is, in spite of how things appear, now just think of how things appear right now in our world. Evil seems to be running rampant. It's out of control. Satan seems to appear to be alive and well, not bound yet. I can't see it like that, unless he personally is bound and his minions are free to create horrible things in the world. Evil is definitely on the rise, out of control. We have religious oppression that is on the rise. Many, many churches are shrinking. People are walking away from the Christian faith. What are we to think about this? So in spite of how things appear in Daniel's time, with the triumph of the Babylonians over Israel, taking captives of Israel, destroying the temple in Jerusalem, In spite of how things appear, God is in full control. God is in full control. The, the book of Daniel has reinforced for us over and over again the fact that God has a plan. He is working things out in history, guiding and directing the course of history according to that plan. This is what Daniel is teaching us over and over again. So we as believers should not despair. We shouldn't panic. We shouldn't doubt. We need to reaffirm that, our belief of what the truth is. In spite of how things appear, God is in fuller control than evil is in control. And one other thing. 
and I'll spend just a little more time on this one point. We've talked about God's sovereignty over and over again. Everything happens according to his plan and purpose. Now, does that mean that human decision, human choices, man exercising his will, his freedom, does that mean that that's not important or plays no part in God's plan? Well, I know what we believe here, so I'm preaching to the choir, but let's just think, think it through for a moment. If we believe that God is sovereignly in control of history and that mankind follows his plan exactly, it occurs according to what he has determined ahead of time. Does that mean that man really doesn't have any choices? That he's more or less being forced or compelled to choose things, to say things, to act, to will things, because he's kind of programmed to do it. He, he doesn't have any other choice but to do what God wants him to do. Is that a fair question to ask? Have you thought that? As the sovereignty of God is upheld in our church and we believe these things, does that... Does it follow that man's choices, his willing things, plays no part and he really doesn't have a free choice in life? Well, those are big questions. You remember when we went through the book of Romans? And in chapter 9, Paul deals with that very question. So I'm kind of circling around and I'm coming back to Romans uh, Romans 9, 19, I think, is where the objection is. You will say unto me then, why does he yet find fault for who has resisted his will? To put it in the King James language. That's the question Paul is asking. If we can't resist the will of God, if his will is totally sovereign over us, how can he hold me accountable for my actions because I can't do anything but do the will of God? So how can I be responsible? That's the question that Paul asks. And I'm asking it again, only from Daniel's perspective and what we've learned in this book. So I, I want to answer it by looking at the statement, the first statement that the Westminster Confession of Faith has concerning God's decree. I want us to look at this and think about this. This is one of the, this is one of the greatest statements in history on this point, I believe. This, was, this is not the idea of one man. This, these were the best theologians that Great Britain had back in the 17th century. Over a hundred of them convened for five or six years. And they drew up Westminster standards that involved the confession of faith, the shorter catechism, and the larger catechism. And we as a church, we hold to many of these things, but this statement here is a great one because they put together something that is important to understand. So notice what they said. 
God from all eternity did by his most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. So that, that's God's decree. God has ordained whatever comes to pass in human history. But they go on and they put some guardrails around this teaching in what follows. And what I mean by that is, this is true, this first statement, but you've got to remember these things when you're thinking, of, thinking this through. Because it doesn't mean these things. They're going to tell you, it doesn't mean this, doesn't mean that, doesn't, mean, doesn't imply this. And that's what I want to look at. I want to look at the guardrails that they put up around the sovereignty of God, around God's eternal plan. Notice the first one. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin. Because we believe that God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, that doesn't mean that he is the originator of sin or the perpetrator of sin. You know, we know the James chapter 1 says, When we're tempted, let no man say, I am tempted of God, because God cannot be tempted with evil. So we have that right from the Bible. God is not the author of sin. Well, didn't he create Lucifer? Didn't he know that Lucifer was going to fall? That seems to me if he created Lucifer and the Lucifer became Satan and Satan introduced the fall of man. It seems to make God ultimately responsible for it. No, they say. God is not the author of sin. The Gordian knot of theology is the question, where did evil come from? The Bible, all it says is, Satan was created perfect. In the day of his creation, he was a perfect. And then it adds, until sin or iniquity was found in him. That's as close as we come in the Bible to where it started. Iniquity was found in him. God didn't put it there. God created Lucifer perfect. That's the mystery. Where did this come from in Satan's heart to want to be like God? The Bible just says he was created perfect until iniquity was found in him. That's the great mystery of theology. Where did evil come from? God is not the author of evil in any shape or form. So we have to, that's a guardrail to. So all the sin of man that comes out in human history, God is not the author of that. He doesn't cause it. He doesn't force any creature to sin. When a person commits sin, they do it freely. They commit sin because they want to, because they want to, not because they feel that they're being compelled against their will to do evil. 
Now, secondly, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. What does that mean? Because God has ordained everything, it doesn't mean that God violates man's will by forcing him to do what I just said. Forcing him or compelling him to do something he doesn't want to do. Now, there are a few instances in the Bible where people are forced to do what they didn't want to do to begin with. But when you look carefully at those illustrations, they were being compelled to do the right thing. Jonah, he wanted to flee from his mission to Nineveh. He didn't want to preach to the Ninevites. He wanted God to destroy them. They were enemies of Israel. But God brought all those circumstances to bear that changed Jonah's mind, so he was willing to go, and he was given a second chance. Somebody said he never forces to go, he never forces to go against our will, but he sure can make us willing to go. And that's what he did in the case of Jonah. He made him willing to do his will. That was a good thing. It was bringing his will into compliance with God's will. But generally, the decree of God does not violate the will of the creature. So there, that's, a, that's a, an important guardrail to hold to that. We don't mean that, that man is a robot. Thirdly, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Let's take these, there's two things here. Let's take each of them. Nor is the liberty of second causes taken away. What is a second cause? If God is the ultimate cause of all things in his decree... The second causes are is man's decisions, his choices, and so on. So, God does not take away the liberty of second causes. So, rather than violating the will of the creature, man has total freedom within God's decree to do what he wants, to act as he wills, to make his choices and decisions according to what he really wants and desires. Those second causes are very important in God's decree. The liberty of second causes. So instead of the will of the creature being violated, uh, the decree of God actually establishes the liberty of man is what they're saying. This is this is where we get the the belief in man's freedom is right here. That within God's plan and purpose, he has given man freedom. It guarantees his freedom. But then it adds a fourth thing here. 
nor is the contingency of second causes taken away. And that is a, a great thing that they're adding here. The contingency ideas meaning what happens in God's plan doesn't happen in a vacuum. There are second causes. Things are dependent on other things. So man's choices and so on are important to what follows next, the next thing, which then applies and impacts the next event. These, there's a chain of events in God's plan and purpose and they're interwoven, they're connected. It's important that second causes take place, that things are dependent and necessary for other things to occur. So the, to me, they, they're bringing all of this together under one roof. That when we think of God's plan and decree, we, we've got to remember Man is still free within this. He, his choices are important to how things fall out. Things just don't happen because God... See, there's another thing. God's decree does not, guarantee, does not cause anything in itself to happen. <laughs> the decree itself doesn't cause things to happen. It's the second causes in the plan that cause things to happen. His decree makes it certain that it is going to happen like that. This is how I think of it anyway. My pea brain is this is how I understand the workings of it. And I think that this is what the theologians of so long ago were trying to tell us about this. Man is free in God's plan and purpose. And isn't it interesting that four times in the book of Daniel, four times, once in chapter 8 and three times in chapter 11, it says of the king that it's talking about that he does according to his will. So four times in the book of Daniel, you have that statement. So man does do what he wants. Now, I know that's true of monarchs, especially. They do as they please. They're sovereign. But it's true of mankind that we do really what we want to do. And yet we're taught this amazing thing about God's per plan and purpose and that things occur according to that plan. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.